our prayer for you is that you know this Jesus, our living hope. Uh, trust him, receive him as your Savior and Lord. Uh, and if you don't, you can. God has made a way for you uh, through his mercy and grace, through his son, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for you on the cross and rose from the grave on that third morning, Easter, as we celebrate it even to this day. Take your Bibles, if you would, turn back to Exodus chapter 12. We're just going to continue along in our series I think that this message, uh, well, is just a, a really good message for Easter. <laughs> no reason to, to veer off today. Exodus chapter 12, we'll be looking at a passage in chapter 12 and also at chapter 13 for our message this morning. A couple of weeks ago when I preached, my message concerned the Passover, the institution of an annual celebration, or really a, a rite or ritual, a, a remembrance, a commemoration of what God did as He delivered His people from Egyptian bondage. It was an annual reenactment, a remembrance of that night when the death angel passed through the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn of Egypt, man and beast, were killed, but... The destroyer passed over the houses of the Israelites when he saw the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doorposts. So this celebration was an annual reminder to God's people that they were saved by the mercy of God, saved by grace through faith. You know, I think sometimes we get the wrong idea that in the Old Testament, people were saved through their obedience, through their perseverance. Let me tell you, people have always been saved by grace through faith. Again, just as we sang this morning, our salvation is not based upon what we have done, but upon what God has done for us. Now this morning, our text has to do with the seven days of celebration that followed the Passover. That, that Passover uh, commemoration was not the end. It was very, really the beginning of a seven-day celebration known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and this week-long celebration, again, was also held annually, uh, and it too was a reminder, uh, a reminder that God's people had not only been saved from sin, but they had been saved for sanctification. Now, did you hear that? The salvation that God provided for His people was not simply a salvation from sin, but it was a salvation for sanctification. God saved a people from sin and He saved that people for Himself. I think sometimes uh, we tend to think of our salvation as something that happened in our past when God set us free from the guilt and shame of our sin. And indeed, that's a wonderful thing that God does for us, is it not? Uh, he sets us free from the guilt, the shame. He, he forgives us. But let me tell you, our salvation does not end there. Salvation is about this wonderful life that God has given us, this abundant life, this life of following after Jesus, pursuing the purposes of God, and ultimately a home in heaven and on the new earth and eternity in the very presence of God. So this 
whole week of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were an annual reminder to the people of Israel, God's people, of what God had done for them. Save them from sin, but also save them for sanctification. You see, God's people were to leave Egypt. They had been there 430 years. But now they were to leave Egypt and the sins of Egypt behind. And they were to journey to a new place, a a promised land, right? Uh, Where they would pursue a new purpose, bringing honor and glory to God. Back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23, I believe Neil even referred to it last week in his message. But this is what God said to Pharaoh. He said, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. You see, that's, that's really the essence of this story. God delivering his people, bringing them out to serve him in order to to bring them in as we have emphasized over and over and over again. You see, church, before a person is saved, before you were saved, you, you were a slave to sin. You served sin. But when God saves a person, that person is set free from sin and simultaneously set free to serve God. So like the Israelites, if we're to serve the Lord in a manner that brings Him honor and glory, we must determine to eliminate sin from every area of our lives. As Paul said to the Galatian church in Galatians 5.1, he said, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I'm going to pray with you, and then we're going to kind of take the Scripture a little bit at a time as we work our way through these two passages. Uh, And again, but what I I want you to remember, I want you to leave here with today, is this whole idea, again, that God has indeed saved you from sin, and praise God for it. But salvation does not end there. God has saved you for Himself, for sanctification, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be used to bring honor and glory to God. Let me pray. Father, we are so thankful today for the story of the Exodus, Lord, and I, I pray that it would be to us even what it has been to the, to the Jewish people for all of these years since, a reminder of your great salvation, a reminder of the great mercy with which you lavished your love and grace upon us, a reminder, Father, that you brought us out in order to bring us in. You saved us in order to serve you and to lay down our lives in sacrificial service to one another. So Lord, help us today to heed this warning that is implied in this celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Lord, and to determine that we will not allow sin to have even a little bit of a place in our lives and hearts. Lord, help us to determine today to no longer tolerate sin in our midst, but to move on in sanctification, to serve you uh, to your honor and glory. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In Exodus chapter 12, really the teaching concerning the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is right there in that chapter. Of course, I use that same chapter to talk about the, the Feast of Passover uh, or, the, or the day of Passover. But in verse 14, I'm just going to read a little bit here. Uh, this is what 
the Bible says, verse 14 of Exodus chapter 12, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. And you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Critical, that unleavened bread is is mentioned time and time again here, and we'll talk about the the symbolism of unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove all leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. As you observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I I brought you uh, your hosts out of the, the land of Egypt. So again, this was a week-long celebration following the, the Passover day observance. And it involved cleaning, removing the leaven uh, here from their, their bread. They were to eat bread with no leaven in it. But as we know, uh, they were to, to totally remove any leaven from their households in observance of this annual celebration as the years went by. Uh, again, as a reminder that God had brought them out by their hosts uh, from the land of Egypt. So I believe what God is saying to the nation of Israel and to us today is, again, just what we've talked about. I've saved you or delivered you from Egyptian bondage, but that's not all that's being done here. I have saved you in order that you might serve me, that you might come to that place that I have promised you, that land flowing with milk and honey, and there you might serve me, serve one another. And in order to do that, you have to determine that sin, the sin of Egypt. And let me tell you, after 430 years in Egypt, Egypt had thoroughly saturated the people of God. All right? They were not only slaves there, uh, but many of them had become happy to be slaves there. Uh, And as a matter of fact, as we continue reading in Exodus, there were times even after their deliverance that the people of Israel wanted to go back to Egypt. Uh, So the sins of Egypt, the Egyptian gods that we have read about, that God so thoroughly defeated in his demonstration of his power, all of this had permeated the lives of the Hebrews, and they were to come out of that in order to serve God faithfully. Uh, So, the first instruction here, other than the fact that this was a memorial that was to be kept year after year, was that they were to remove, on the very first day, remove leaven out of your houses, and if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person will be cut off What's being stressed here and throughout the scripture where leaven is concerned and especially the removal of leaven from from Hebrew homes was this idea of forsaking sin, leaving sin behind. In the Jewish culture, leaven has always been a symbol for sin. And of course, the New Testament, if there's any questions about that in your mind, the New Testament confirms for us that this is the proper understanding of what's being talked about here. Paul Uh, The great apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, he rebukes the Corinthian church for their toleration of sin. Uh, 
He refers to that toleration of sin as arrogance. And let me just say this, church. When we tolerate sin in our lives, it's the height of arrogance. God has said, get rid of it. Get rid of the sin in your lives. It'll destroy you. And yet, so often, like the Israelites, like the New Testament church, we tolerate sin in our lives. Just a little sin, you know. We're not going to go back to living completely the way we used to live. But surely we can indulge ourselves just a little bit. Scripture says, no, you better not do that. This is what Paul says to the Corinthian church as he rebukes them and then warns them. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Do you not know that a little sin corrupts the whole lump with sin? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. In other words, church, because Christ has done for you what He has done, because He has saved you, delivered you from the power of sin and death, because He has cleansed you and made you holy, filled you with the Holy Spirit, the reality is you are unleavened. But all too often we fall back into sin, sins of our past. Paul continues, just so we're sure that what he's talking about here, he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven. And then he defines, at least in part, what the old leaven is, the leaven of malice and evil. So if there's any question in your mind about what leaven represents, it represents sin, malice, evil. But we're to celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus, of course, issues a similar warning in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You know, we, uh, we're quick to condemn the Pharisees because we know about them, what Jesus said to them, what they did to Jesus but boy, how often do our lives kind of line up with the lives of the Pharisees, right? Hypocrisy. We've got to move on from that life of sin from which God has saved us. Now, the, the problem with leaven, of course, is a, is a problem that I think we can all identify with, at least to a certain degree. We're maybe not uh, bakers of bread like perhaps we were at one point in our history. But the truth that's being proclaimed here is that leaven or yeast would be the word that we would use today, permeates everything that it touches. We know this. How, how many of you have ever received a little starter batch of, of friendship bread? All you got to do is mix up your flour and water and all the stuff that goes into making the dough for the bread. But then you have to do this. You have to take that starter dough, right, which is leavened. And then you add it, and suddenly that dough begins to rise. That, that little bit of starter pack eventually works its way through the entire batch. And that's what's being taught here. Sin, if allowed to enter in, will permeate your life. The life of your family. The life of your church. The life of your community. The life of a nation. Sin is not to be tolerated. You're to, you're to get that sin out of there. That's what they were commanded to do. 
get the sin out of your houses. Remove it completely. And then don't eat anything with leaven in it. No leavened bread. This feast, and again, that word implies all that we would think that it implies. They were to feast throughout this week on the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. They were to feast together as families and friends, neighbors who had been miraculously delivered from the power of Pharaoh and and Egypt, the house of slavery or bondage. And, And they had been set free now in order to serve God and they were to remind themselves every year of just how dangerous sin can be. You know, church, I think sometimes we need to be reminded how dangerous sin is. Again, it's easy to grow lax in our Christian lives. To think that somehow we have matured to the point in Christ where we can allow a little bit of sin back in and it'll be okay. Again, the Bible is filled with warnings about sin's pervasiveness. Once you let sin in, it wants to fill every nook and cranny. And let me tell you, sin's still like that. It hadn't changed. So this warning to the Israelites, again, that was symbolized by the removal of leaven from their homes is still a warning that we should heed today. And then also what's important for us to understand is that the willingness of faithful Jews to to celebrate this festival, to reenact, I mean, I'm telling you, right up to this very day, There are Jewish households that at this time of year, they reenact and and they literally go through their homes symbolically because yeast doesn't come in the same shape and form that it did back in Bible. I've read that back in Bible days that if you prepared dough for bread, sometimes you didn't even have to add yeast to it. That there was enough yeast just kind of floating around that it it might just leaven your bread for you. That's why there was such care to be taken in removing the leaven from the house. Uh, So they were to do this every year. And in doing this every year, going through this reenactment, symbolically sweeping the yeast out of their households, it was a reminder to them all of the danger, the destructive power of sin, its, its pervasiveness course it also demonstrated uh, their faith in God that they would do this every year you know when we do what God has called us to do when we obey the commands of God as he's laid them out for us it's an evidence of our faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us but when we refuse to do what God has called us to do It's also evidence of our lack of faith in God. So is your life a life that's characterized by obedience to the Lord? Are you doing what God called you to do? What God has commanded you to do through the scriptures? All of it? Sin will wreck your life. And allowing even just a little bit of it uh, will lead to bigger And worse, more pervasive sin in your life. And there's a penalty. That's the second thing that we read here, that sin comes with a penalty. The scripture says, if anyone eats what is leavened, they shall be cut off 
from Israel. Later in verse 19, it speaks of being cut off from the congregation of Israel. And the one thing that I, I want to do right away, I, I want you to, to listen to that. If you refuse to rid your life of sin, if you indulge even a little bit, if you eat even a little bit of leavened bread, God says, you're going to be cut off from the congregation. That sounds pretty stern, doesn't it? God takes our sin very seriously. I think sometimes we don't. I have taught from this pulpit for many years now that even as Christians, we, we continue to sin, right? We have not become sinless. We will never reach sinless perfection, not in this lifetime. But let me tell you, that should not cause us to be apathetic about our sin. It should not cause us to just resign ourselves to sin. No, we need to, we need to fight against sin. We need to rid our lives of sin. We need to sweep it out of our lives just like the Israelites were to sweep it out of their home. Sin comes with a harsh penalty. If anyone eats unleavened bread, they'll be cut off from Israel. Those words cut off sound pretty, pretty serious, and they should. But I do want to say this about those words. Being cut off from the congregation of Israel was not something that God was instructing the Israelites to carry out. In other words, this was not an instruction on how to punish the sinner. Okay? See, that's what we often do. We look at words like this, and then we start looking around. Who in here ought to be cut off? And we're looking at each other, right? It's not me. That's not what's being said here. These are not instructions on how to enforce the law within the congregation. What these words imply is that the penalty of destruction, really that's what it means to be cut off, to be destroyed, to be ruined, to be wrecked, it's a self-imposed sentence. When you choose to sin, you impose upon yourself the destruction that's being implied here. It's, a, it's a really a statement of fact. Those who willfully refuse to obey the Lord by observing the feast would bring destruction upon themselves. Because again, their refusal to observe the feast would be a defiant refusal to obey the Lord. And let me just ask, is there an area of your life where you defiantly refuse to obey the Lord? Is there some command that you know God has issued that it applies to you and you just say, well, that's for somebody else, not for me. I'm going to excuse myself, exempt myself. Let me tell you, you may be inviting destruction into your life. That's what the words cut off mean. What does it mean to be cut off from the congregation of Israel to, to him? self-impose this destruction in my life. Well, in terms of the near future, it would mean a forfeiture of the many blessings of God. When you choose to live willfully in sin, you forfeit many of the blessings that God would pour out upon your life. Same thing was true for the Israelites. A refusal, a defiance to observe this annual feast would mean a forfeiture of the blessings that God 
wanted to lavish upon his people. Same thing's true today. When we live lives of sin, when we tolerate sin in our lives, when we excuse sin in our lives, we invite difficulty, destruction, ruin. We wreck our own lives. Now, in terms of the more distant future, continuing in sin will ultimately resort, result in the forfeiture of eternal life. If you remain in your sin, and you die in your sin, you will live eternally away from the presence of the Lord. That's what the scripture says. So church, we need to take this warning seriously. Sin, even just a little bit of sin, is a serious thing. Ultimately, it can mean the forfeiture of your life, your eternal life. Numbers 15, 30 through 31 gives us a little clarity on this. The Bible simply says there, but anyone who sins defiantly blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commands. That person shall be utterly cut off. His guilt remains on him. Pretty clear, right? Sin brings this self-imposed destruction. To despise the word of the Lord. To say, yeah, I know what God says, but I'm not interested. It's a serious thing. Paul says it like this in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. The New Testament God hasn't gotten any more lenient than the Old Testament God. I think sometimes we, we have that impression of God, right? The Old Testament God was the God of wrath. The New Testament God is the God of love. Let me tell you, when it comes to sin, the wages of sin is death. Destruction, separation from God is what that word means. And again, in Romans 6.23, there is no indication at all that instruction is being given to the church how to handle sinners, right? Paul wasn't teaching the church in Rome to, to kill those who sinned. He was letting those who sinned know that they were killing themselves. Sin comes with a, a penalty. And then over in chapter 13, we begin reading about the consecration of the firstborn. Again, this reminder that when Israel left Egypt, they left on the night following the death of the firstborn in Egypt. They were to remember that, again, to a certain extent, to, 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 to reenact that. The Lord said to Moses in chapter 13, verse 1, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. In other words, set the firstborn aside for me. And again, this was a, a recollection. It was, it was given to them, this command given to them, for them to remember that the firstborn in Egypt had died. All of the male children, all, firstborn children, all of the, of the, the, the animals had, had died on that Passover night. And so now as a reminder, as a, again, a remembrance, they were to consecrate all the, the firstborn, all of the first to open the womb. And this idea of consecrating, setting aside the firstborn, again, we'll read all about it here. The, it, it, it establishes for us that sin comes with a price. There's a cost to sin. 
And, and I'm, I'm making a distinction from the penalty of sin, destruction, and the price that must be paid for sin. That word consecrate in 13.1 means to set aside for divine use. Really to pass over to God for his own possession. That's what it meant. All of the first to open the womb, animals, children, firstborn sons. Again, and I don't want to get into a bunch of stuff about the firstborn son. That meant that it represented all of the children, male and female, all right? But these, these children were to be given to the Lord. Uh, now, there was a distinction on how they were to be given. The firstborn animals were to be offered to the Lord as sacrifices. They were to be sacrificed as burnt offerings to the Lord. But the firstborn humans, firstborn sons, the Bible says, your sons you shall redeem. And there's, a, there's another wonderful word. This story of Exodus teaches us so many great theological truths. But here's the, the, the doctrine of redemption right here. To redeem something means to secure its release or to buy it back by the payment of a price. That's what we're talking about, the price of sin. There was a price to be paid to redeem these firstborn. And again, for the animals, a little different. Now, if a donkey was born, uh, donkeys were considered unclean animals. That's why they weren't offered as sacrifices. They, their necks were to be broken if they weren't to be redeemed or they could be redeemed uh, by purchasing them and then continuing to utilize them as bearers of burdens, workers in, this, in the, in the farmland. Uh, and it's also interesting that, that we as sons are put in the same category as donkeys, also to be redeemed. And I'm not implying that we're the same as the animals. But they were to redeem their sons. They were to buy them back by the payment of a price. Ultimately, and it's not given here, but later the price would be established at five shekels. That was the temple price to redeem a son. And this recurring ritual of redeeming the firstborn reminded the Israelites that sin is pardoned only by the payment of a price. A price had to be paid. The price that was paid for our sin was the death of God's own son, Jesus Christ. The deliverance of Israel had cost the Egyptians all of their firstborn. It was a terrible night in Egypt. Terrible morning as they awakened to death in every household. But the remembrance of this was a reminder to parents that their children, all of them, not just the firstborn sons, but all of them, belong to God. Parents, you know that, right? Your children belong to God. Oh, he's entrusted them to you. And you have a great responsibility, but your children belong to God. They're His. They're His creation. Uh, this would remind parents that their children belong to God. And of course, it would also be a lesson to the children that their lives had meaning and purpose far beyond the sphere of their family and friends. And I would just say to everyone in this room, you are a person of worth. You were created in the image of God. God loves you. God desires good for you. You are, well, if you are in Christ, the Bible says you've been bought with a price. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You are the precious property of God, chosen by Him, set aside 
for his purposes. Sin is a serious thing. It comes with a harsh penalty, destruction. It'll wreck your life. And it also requires a price to be paid, the price of redemption that Christ Jesus paid himself on the cross. Again, that's what all this ultimately points to, that Jesus Christ, God's firstborn, right, and only son would give his life to pay the price for our sin, thus to buy us back from the marketplace of sin. Aren't you glad this morning to know that you've been bought with a price? That God loves you enough to do that? Scripture goes on to say, and we need to wrap this up, every year this would take place in the household, the sweeping out of the yeast, the reenactment of these ceremonies and rituals, and what would inevitably happen and what was supposed to happen is that the children would ask their father who was leading this celebration, Dad, what does all this mean? What are we supposed to take away from this? What is all this sweeping out the yeast? What is all of this eating of unleavened bread? What what does all of this mean? What does this redemption of the firstborn mean? What are we to take away from this? And of course, God says that we're just to say to our our sons, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us up out out of Egypt. In other words, all of this is to remind us that sin had us enslaved. But the strong hand of God has now set us free. And that's what we're to be reminded of every time we observe the Lord's Supper together. Sin once had us enslaved. We were were slaves to sin. We were servants of sin. But God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has set us free. The fathers would testify every year to their family the ability of God to deliver His people from bondage. And let me just tell you this, church. Let me tell anyone that's listening this morning, I don't care what sin you're caught up in. I don't care what's got you enslaved. God's strong hand can set you free from that sin. And that is his desire this morning, to set you free. You know, the same thing that was true then is true today. God saves you from sin. Only God can save you from sin. That's the point being made here. It was God's strong hand that brought them out of Egypt. It wasn't anything that they did. They couldn't free themselves. They, I'm not even sure they wanted to free themselves. But God set them free. Only He can do it. And let me tell you, only God can save a person from sin today. Only God can give your life meaning and purpose Only He can promise and provide a future beyond anything that you can even imagine. I mean, that's what God has done for us. Yes, He saved us from sin, but He saved us for Himself to serve Him, to love Him, to honor Him, to glorify Him. And then one day to go and live with Him in a place, again, that we can't even begin to imagine. Christians, brothers and sisters... Serve the Lord. Refuse, staunchly refuse to be ruled by any sin, to allow any sin into your life. Serve the Lord. Honor the Lord. And then, if if you're not sure whether or not you're a Christian, if you've never come to Christ in repentance and, and received Him as Savior and Lord, then do that today. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. Leave it behind. Come to Christ. Receive Him as your Savior. And Lord, He'll set you free to live for Him, to honor Him. Set you free to a life of purpose 
and significance.